0: Bush and Bin Laden, you think they're foes They're in business together Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before Been raking in billions and itching for more it's-
1: Emma's Revolution. My name is Leonardo Flores. I'm part of Code Pink's Latin American team. Welcome to our Code Pink radio show presented by WBAIA New York City and WPFW in Washington, D.C. On today's show, I'm very pleased that our first guest is going to be David Ruthkin, who is one of the attorneys for Venezuelan diplomat Alex Saab. Alex Saab is a political prisoner. We've talked about him on the show before. He's a Venezuelan diplomat who's been persecuted by the U.S. for several years now until they finally basically kidnapped him in Cape Verde, illegally extradited him to the U.S. where he's facing corruption uh, charges in what looks to me like a sham trial. We'll talk more with David Rifkin about this, his attorney. On the second half of the show, I'm really pleased to have Alina Duarte, an independent journalist from Mexico. She and I will be discussing CELAC, the community of Latin American and Caribbean states, and whether that can be a viable alternative to the organization of American states. We'll also talk about Latin American geopolitics in general. First, some news and I wanna talk a little bit about Code Pink's latest petition. It's an open letter to US Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman and to NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg. Right now there's a dangerous escalation of tensions at the Russia-Ukraine border and the real possibility of a military conflict that could easily spiral out of control. Surprise, surprise, the US and NATO are playing a major role in exacerbating this conflict and we must call on them to play a role in its de-escalation instead. Super important that this war not happened for very obvious reasons, including saving lives, including the fact that we have a looming climate catastrophe, and this is a time when the world needs to come together instead of continuing this kind of fighting for for resources based on corporate greed. Uh, so please become part of the peace movement. Please sign this petition. You can find it at codepink.org slash Ukraine underscore NATO. In other Code Pink news, this weekend, on the, f- the weekend of the 15th, Medea Benjamin, Code Pink co-founder, code is flying to Cuba to send a shipment of powdered milk along with the People's Forum in New York City and Puentes tamo a Cuban-American organization. We raised about $17,000 to send this plane that has 16,000 pounds of powdered milk Milk. They're going to send it to the Martin Luther King Center in Cuba, uh, where there is a critical shortage of powdered milk that's given out to children, pregnant women, and people with medical needs. The shortage is entirely due to the U.S. blockade, to the Trump sanctions. We have to end this pol- policy of cruelty towards our Cuban brothers and sisters right now. And this is a kind of a small show of solidarity from the people of the U.S. to the Cuban people. Uh, you know, check out Code Pink's social media over the weekend to see some of the pictures and some interviews. Uh, when the plane arrives in Cuba and also if you're in the DC area please check out our website at at the website of cutthepentagon.org it has events upcoming events throughout DC throughout the country really but many of them are focused on DC it's a way to get involved it's a way to get involved in cutting the Pentagon which you know we have 700 and what 70 billion dollar Pentagon budget this year absolutely insane given all the problems we have in this country that we continue to pump money into the pentagon anyway that's my little rant for the day hopefully uh, folks will become excited and join us at code pink become a follower become an activist become involved in the peace movement my first guest today is david rivkin attorney for alex saab we've spoken about alex saab on this program before he's a venezuelan special envoy to iran a diplomat currently jailed in the us facing charges of corruption Saab was first detained in Cabo Verde in 2020, despite the fact that he had diplomatic immunity and the fact that there was no arrest warrant. He was in Cabo Verde because his plane stopped to refuel on its way from Venezuela to Iran, where he was going to broker a trade deal for fu- fuel, food, and medicine. He was then illegally extradited extradited to the US in October, and his extradition derailed the talks between the Venezuelan government and opposition. Thank you so much for being on the program, David.
2: Good to be with you.
1: So. Whenever I speak about Alex Saab, people are very surprised to hear that a foreign diplomat is on trial in the U.S. because it's common knowledge. I mean, we all know that diplomats are supposed to have immunity. Is the U.S. government violating the Vienna Convention and the Diplomatic Relations Act by prosecuting Alex Saab?
2: It is indeed doing that. It it began violating it by indicting him and seeking his extradition. Having obtained uh, this extradition uh, it is certainly violating the DRA and the Vienna Convention by uh, continuing his prosecution. And one of the things I wanted to emphasize, this is truly unprecedented. The US has always taken, I mean, aside from the fact that this is a US international law obligation by virtue of uh, Vienna Convention the relevant article uh, that uh, talks about immunity of diplomatic agents is Article 29 of the Vienna Convention and Article 254 of the DRA, not to be too technical, but uh, the broader proposition is that the U.S. has always, going back to its founding, long before the Vienna Convention, long before the Diplomatic Relations Act, has always taken a very broad view uh, and, and protective view of diplomatic immunity, both for diplomats accredited to the United States as well as preferred country diplomats. So there's really, a, really an unprecedented case, and I, I have to say uh, I find it utterly surprising because law aside, and that's the point we're making in, uh, uh, in our legal legal papers, and the one I'm going to emphasize my or argument that's coming up in the Eleventh Circuit is that from a standpoint of of national interest, standpoint of policy, U.S. is the world's diplomatic superpower, probably have more special envoys, which is what Alex Saab is. He is not a resident ambassador. He is a special envoy, as you said, from Venezuela to Iran. Uh, we cannot have, the United States cannot and should not be in a, in a world where you, third countries can molest uh, U.S. diplomats, and if you establish a rule which says that third country diplomats can be molested by the United States, it is inevitable that the same would happen with U.S. diplomats. So this is a prosecution that uh, is not based upon the law and is not really in the long-term interest of the United States itself.
1: Can you tell us a bit about the status of, of his case right now? I know you just mentioned the 11th Circuit.
2: Right, uh, we uh, um, finished briefing this issue in the... Uh, let, me, let me back up and say, as, as you undoubtedly know, while his extradition was still unfolding and uh, Alex Saab was in Cabo Verde, we sought to quash his indictment in the district court. Uh, we did not succeed in this effort. Um, we appealed uh, as a matter of right because involved the question of immunity. to The 11th Circuit, we unfolded our papers. DOJ uh, 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 filed several papers in opposition and I'm pleased to say that uh, we have an argument scheduled for the first week of, uh, of April or precise date to be determined by the court, consistent with its you know, other um, commitments, other oral arguments uh, in the next few weeks. So we're looking forward to that. And, and, and again, 11th Circuit is an excellent circuit time. I mentioned earlier that uh, the law is squarely on our side and the leading case in this space, actually two leading cases, an old one involved, uh, called Bergman and a footprint of a second circuit, uh, that involved an opinion written by uh, uh, enormously well-regarded uh, uh, appellate judge, Judge Lloyd at hand. <laughs> you can imagine going for life of such a moniker uh, that involved actually a third country diplomat, a, a French diplomat who was uh, uh, in a civil case, uh, serve of civil process. Uh, on his way uh, in New York, on his way to Bolivia, wrote a very compelling opinion talking about international legal authorities. And again, this is all prior to, to both uh, uh, Vienna Convention of sixty one and the Diplomatic Relations Act. And then on the Eleventh Circuit, there is a um, nineteen eighty four case uh, called Abdulaziz that involved a Saudi Arabia special envoy uh, to the United States and uh, a very, very strong opinion, which basically says, uh, in Abdulaziz's case, that a special envoy is considered to be a head of mission uh, and uh, is entitled to full diplomatic immunity. So, we're looking forward to the uh, the oral argument uh, that's coming up, and we're, we're hopeful and optimistic that we will prevail. As I said, this This is an issue that's not only important for for our client, but I think it's important for the United States. And and also, let me be broader in in my assessment and say it's important for the whole world. We have enough problems in the world uh, as it is, and diplomatic intercourse, while it's not a panacea, is certainly important. And if you start interfering with third country diplomats, uh, it is just going to make it a more anarchic, more conflict-plagued uh, uh, world.
1: And it's my understanding that one of the ways the Department of Justice, the DOJ, is going to argue the case, or has argued the case, is that they're claiming that it was Cabo Verde that violated the Vienna Convention, and that therefore they're not the ones responsible for violating it. Is that, is that the case, and, and how would you respond to that particular
2: argument? Uh, we've responded to it already, but to I think it's, it's one of those things we don't need to be a lawyer to figure this out. The United States is a party to the Vienna Convention. The United States <clears throat> has Diplomatic Relations Act. It is bound by its obligations no matter uh, what was done by other countries. Cabo Verde absolutely violated its legal obligations. That does not provide any uh, uh, excuse for the United States not to comply with its legal obligations. And think about it to be precise because we, mentioned earlier in, in the discussion, diplomatic immunity, but let me be very precise. We're talking about the, a particular subset of overall diplomatic immunity, just called intransito immunity, which is a fancy word for uh, special envoy transiting from the sending country, which is Venezuela, to the receiving country, which is Iran. And it, it happened uh, that this plane uh, uh, you know, landed for refueling in, in Cabo Verde. Uh, but uh, the transito immunity applies to all countries. Uh, it, it cannot be the case that if one country violated it, it's open season for other countries. So the U.S. legal obligations are absolutely uh, not dependent upon the extent of uh, compliance by Cap authority. And in fact, that there's a very clear language specifically that emphasizes the uniformity universality of this obligation in, uh, in the Vienna Convention. And, and but again, I said, just as a matter of common sense, think about what, what this would mean. So if you have you know, one rogue country uh, that violated uh, immunity of a third country a diplomat had happened to pass for its territory, um, or happened to, you know, was done by Belarus not that long ago, it didn't involve a diplomat. But you know, we have instances where countries have forced down a plane uh carrying uh you know carrying uh, nationals of, of another country so it, just because this country done that the the, the person who's been uh, so molested is uh is liable to be further molested by other countries it makes no sense it, it is an nonsensical argument
1: can you explain the charges against alex sub and do you think they have merit because to me it seems like it's a heavily political case given the extremely harsh sanctions that have been imposed on Venezuela that were meant to lead to regime change, but Saab helped Venezuela circumvent these sanctions.
2: Yeah, well, um, the charges that have, uh, they're featured in the indictment, uh, have uh, technically nothing to do with his activities as a diplomat, Uh, but I would say the following, that the merits of those charges are weak on their face, They involve activities that did not take place in the United States. The connection with the U.S. is very tenuous. Uh, The level of of evidence that has been put forward so far is is very tenuous. Uh, So I I think in the merits, both charges do not have uh, sufficient legal weight. But again, the whole point about immunity is, and it's not a technical point, again, as I keep saying, immunity is tremendously important, we are very hopeful that we can prevail uh, on the basis of diplomatic immunity. Uh, that Saab has spent already considerable amount of time in prison, uh, where his country, his government, has been unable to use his his uh, diplomatic services. Where he has been separated from his family, was in truly horrible conditions in Cabo Verde. Uh, he is now in Miami. I would say at least. <laughs> Uh, The conditions are certainly much better than Cabo Verde, but uh, I really would like to have him uh, released and and, and, and go back to his family and his normal life.
1: And going back to this issue of immunity, do you think the fact that the Trump administration, now the Biden administration, doesn't recognize the elected government of Venezuela, will that come into play? Will they argue that, no, he's not a diplomat because he was... You know, named at diplomat by the Maduro government rather than by the so-called interim government of Juan Uh
2: Several points. First of all, um, uh, Alex Saab was actually appointed as a special envoy at the time. The United States still recognized um, uh, the Maduro government, um, point number one. Point number two, um, the U.S. certainly at this time had a somewhat eclectic policy to use a <laughs> A big word towards uh, Venezuela. Uh, the U.S. continues to recognize uh, Mr. Guaido as the president, um, but you know, as you know, the U.S. Is, is trying to facilitate a dialogue between uh, the uh, Maduro government and, and Mr. Guaido. And as you know, there have been some serious problems with uh, with Guaido government and the so-called government in exile. With uh, the foreign minister resigning and allegations of corruption, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so, uh, the important thing is uh, that you, and, and even if you look at the recognition at the level of a presidency, uh, the US continues to recognize the existence of uh, the government in Venezuela and, and interacts with the government in a variety of, 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 of ways. But most importantly, and that's our point. It doesn't matter. Even if the United States did not recognize the entirety of Venezuelan government, uh, this is irrelevant to a question of somebody being accredited to the United States. Here we're talking about somebody who is being sent by Venezuela to Iran, uh, and both receiving state and sending states recognize each other, um, their respective governments. It is not for the United States to pass any judgment on that. That is not how international law works. Um, in m- many instances, uh, you have third uh, country diplomat is entitled to intrinsic immunity where at least some members of the international community may not recognize either the ascending uh, government of ascending state or a government of a receiving state or both. It, it, it should have no bearing on, on, on the immunity as far as uh, so again, U.S. can make a, a sovereign judgment as to somebody who's being accredited to the United States and rejected, but it has no right to make the judgment for Venezuela or Iran. Any more than Venezuela or Iran can have a judgment about a uh, uh, special envoy of the United States sends to another country which they may not uh, uh, have a government that they recognize.
1: And to your point about the U.S. Uh, engaging with Maduro government on certain levels, I know that uh, last month, Roger Carstens, the special envoy for hostage affairs of the White House, was in Venezuela to to meet with uh, several Venezuelan American oil executives who are currently in jail on corruption charges. It, do you think there's a possibility of a of an exchange of 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 prisoners in Venezuela for for Alex Saab? Is that something that has come up? I know there's been speculation in the media about that.
2: Well, we are Alex Saab's lawyers. We're not involved in uh, any diplomatic negotiations and I don't know what's going on anymore when you do but it is it is certainly possible to have a diplomatic solution. Uh our goal is to uh, prevail on the legal front but if there is a diplomatic solution and in, in the in the swap that that is that is that is possible. But I would say that you know, uh it, it's difficult to uh to know what's happening in that front and it's also a question of time so We're proceeding the assumption that we would uh, uh, be successful in vindicating his immunity that would result in the quashing of his indictment and his release. That's that's our emphasis.
1: And why have there been so many delays in this case? I know that his appeals were delayed earlier in the fall of last year. Uh, His latest court hearing was delayed because of the COVID outbreak, which is understandable, but it seems like there have been
2: several delays. Right, well, let me say as far, I mean, uh, you're talking about the status conference in Miami, I mean, that the real action is on the appellate level. The jurisdiction has passed, I need to be technical, from a district court uh, to the Court of Appeals, 11th Circuit to be precise. So uh, the delay of the status conference, which is a, a pretty much a formal matter is really not of great import. Uh, as far as the appellate process is concerned, We have sought expedition and by appellate standards, we're proceeding quite rapidly. But there have been several delays, and to answer your question precisely, they're all caused by DOJ asking for uh, a delay in filing their papers. Um, Department of Justice is entitled to a great difference when it comes to uh, such uh, such delays. I I personally, we have opposed them in in all instances that happen. We think that the uh, excuses the DOJ put on the table were more in the nature of, you know, my dog ate the homework. Uh, I think they're just being dilatory, uh, deliberately. That, that's at least my interpretation of the events. But again, we're looking forward to the raw argument. Uh, we have certainly told the 11th Circuit that every day uh, Alex Saab is, uh, uh, is in prison, is, is not a good day, and, and inflicts damage uh, on him and Venezuela that cannot be uh, that cannot be uh, ameliorated
1: yeah because to me it's a little strange that there have been some delays in this case on the U.S. side but when Saab was in Cabo Verde his extradition process seemed to be sped up and it actually occurred while there was if I'm not mistaken there was still an appeal pending in Cabo Verde and it happened uh, his extradition happened a day before the presidential elections in Cabo Verde (laughs) where the new government might not might have taken a different position towards Mr. Sutton.
2: That is all true. Um, if you, if you consider what, uh, objectives here, which is get him to the United States as, as quickly as possible, uh, both the rushing of extradition proceedings in, in Cabo Verde and delay in our appeal here, uh, flip side of the same coin. Um, it's, it's regrettable. Uh, um, as far as what happened in Cabo Verde, uh, I am, not a Cabo lawyer, but I, I spoke quite a few times with his excellent legal team there. And yes, this was done not only in violation of Cabo international legal obligations, because of immunity. It was done in violation of some very basic procedural norms of Cabo Verde government. He, 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 uh, Alex Albert was indeed extradited, as you surmised, uh, before the legal process, which probably is still ongoing in Cabo Verde uh, has been completed. It, it's unfortunate. Look, uh, my guess, my guess is that, uh, uh, like you say, the Cabo he was pushed very hard by the United States. It's a, it's a, it's unfortunate, but they're a small country, and um, you know uh, they have a very close relationship with the United States, and uh, pressure was brought to bear upon them. It's it's not surprising, but it is certainly regrettable. Uh, but again, the good news is that the time for delays is over. Uh, as I mentioned already, uh, all our legal briefs have been uh, filed. DOJ's legal brief, uh, briefs in opposition have been filed. Uh, we have an oral argument set up, and we're hopeful that not only uh, uh, will prevail, but that the 11th Circuit would rule as expeditiously as possible.
1: And you alluded to this earlier, the conditions uh, Mr. Saba's held in Cabo Verde. I mean, he himself has announced being tortured there, including beatings, being held in isolation, being denied medical treatment. Uh, he's been detained now for, I think, 580 days. How is he doing physically, emotionally? Uh, have you had a chance to gauge his, his well-being?
2: Yeah, I've, I've seen him uh, several times since he arrived to Miami, and I'm planning to see him again next week. Um, I would say several things uh, clearly. Uh, he has suffered a great deal, uh, particularly in Cabo Clearly, he misses his family very much. He misses uh, his uh, his, uh, diplomatic work. But I'm impressed with his stamina. I'm impressed with his strength. Uh, I I really believe that this is a man who is enormously comfortable uh, with... So it's a combination of, you know, uh, it would be unnatural if he was not uh, uh, deeply troubled by the current situation. But I, I, I do detect a great deal of strength in it.
1: And last question, you know, for 20 years now, the US government, uh, some media outlets, they've been demonizing the Venezuelan government and everyone associated with it. If the immunity appeal fails, do you think SOP could get a fair trial in the United States?
2: Well, um, I would say several things. Um, you know, I have tremendous, being a U.S. lawyer, <laughs> um, I have tremendous regard for the ultimate fairness of our justice system in a sense that you have a jury, uh, you have a judge that applies the law, uh, whatever, you know, Dear Jay is trying to do, uh, however, uh, tough its tactics are, uh, DOJ has lost uh, in, in a number of instances. So uh, it is, a, I would say, heavily politicized prosecution. That is correct. Uh, it, 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 on the other hand, I, I, I'm not prepared to say that uh, Alex Sub cannot get a fair trial in the United States. But again, our hope is that all of it would not be necessary yet to the extent we're able to prevail on his community.
1: Well, David Rifkin, thank you so much for being on the program. Best of luck in this uh, immunity appeal. I think a lot of people in Venezuela are very much hoping that Alex Saab will be freed and reunited with his family very soon.
2: Hoping uh, the same. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank
1: you to David Ripkin, attorney for political prisoner Alex Saab. You are listening to Code Pink Radio, coming to you through Pacifica Radio's WPFW in Washington D.C. and WBAI in New York City. We'll be back after this break with independent journalist Alina Duarte.
0: Con su reunión. Como no me voy a reír de la wea, si es una cosa tan fea, tan fea que causa risa. Estoy acá en mi rincón, preguntándome hace rato, ¿cómo es posible que al gato le meta miedo el ratón? ¿Cómo no me voy a reír de la hueá si es una cosa tan fea, tan fea que causa risa? ¡Ah! Done la carcajada, pero usted me hace reír. ¿Cómo no me voy a reír de la OEA si es una cosa tan fea, tan fea que causa risa? <risa> Porque yo de las gallinas me estoy riendo por acá. La OEA es cosa de risa y yo riendo seguiré.
1: That was Carlos Puebla with La OEA Cosa de Risa, The OAS is Something to Laugh About, a song that came out in the 1970s in response to an OAS meeting about Cuba, despite the fact that Cuba wasn't even a member state of the OAS at the time. It's a song I chose because, you know, the OAS continues to run rampant throughout the region, promoting U.S. imperialism. That's what we're going to talk about next. Welcome back. I'm Leonardo Flores at Code Pink. You are listening to Code Pink Radio, presented by WBAIA in New York City and WPFW in Washington, D.C. I'm here now joined by Alina Duarte, an independent journalist and senior research fellow at the Council on Hemispheric Affairs. You can follow her on Twitter at Alina Duarte underscore. That's A-L-I-N-A-D-U-A-R-T-E underscore. And we're going to discuss the CELAC meeting. CELAC is the community of Latin American and Caribbean states, as well as the state of the Latin American left in 2021 and prospects for this year. So last weekend, there was a meeting of the foreign ministers of the CELAC, a multilateral institution, and the bloc of 33 countries voted for Argentina to hold the presidency. Prior to Argentina, Mexico had held the presidency for two years. And among the success stories highlighted by Mexico within the CELAC were the creation of the Latin American and Caribbean Space Agency, a disaster relief and climate change adaptation fund, and greater cooperation on health including a mechanism for countries to jointly purchase medicine that will save them up to 30% in costs. What's your sense of the CELAC under Mexico's presidency over the last two years? And how important do you think this organization, this institution is for the region?
3: Well, first, thanks for having me again, once again. (laughs) Um, What happened during the last years uh, on with the CELAC under Mexico's presidency, I think it happened a lot of things. Uh, CELAC was not this important organization that it was that it used to be under Hugo Chavez, Rafael Correa, Nebo Morales uh, governments many years ago. Um, What we saw in Latin America during the last, uh, especially I think during the last two years, with all the attempts of coup against uh, Venezuela, the coup in Bolivia, uh, all the pressure against the progressive governments in Latin America. the U.S. and these right-wing government's try right to dismantle organizations like CELAC and they try to prioritize the organizations like the uh, OAS, the Organization of American States. Uh, so the CELAC was just another organization in the region, but it wasn't functioning. It wasn't working uh, for so many years. And um, uh, Instead of that, I remember, uh, for example, the creation of a Grupo de, de Lima, uh, the Lima Group, uh, where the right-wing governments participated, attacking all the time Venezuela and Bolivia. Uh, so CELAC wasn't working at all. So under Ambos administration, I think one of the of the main things I've seen, or one of the things that we can see, the that this government is uh, progressive, or we can affirm that is in the um uh, foreign policy under amlo's administration we've seen the asylum to evo morales we've seen uh, the re- reborn of, of the celac and uh, it's not only about the last meeting they had in buenos aires it was also about the meaning they had in mexico here months ago it was so important because uh, even Uh, when Colombia, for example, was trying to push uh, against, uh, like, uh, uh, yeah, they were trying to attack Venezuela and uh, these progressive governments, AMLO decided to, to welcome everyone, we saw this image of Nicolas Maduro driving in the in the downtown of Mexico City. Even when here, the Mexican opposition was just driving crazy uh, because he accepted, even with all the pressure uh, of the of the right wing here in, in Mexico and in the region, he decided to accept and welcome uh, Nicolas Maduro, uh, Luis Arce Catacora, the, the president of, of Bolivia. So it was really important to see that that meeting to had it here uh, also uh, days before that meeting i remember amlo uh, he had I think or i really i really think i really do think that it was one of the most uh, progressive or the most important speeches he has given here uh, in the uh, in the context of a uh, welcome uh Diaz-Canel, the president of Cuba, he also welcomed here and we had uh, here Diaz-Canel days before the meeting of the CELAC in Mexico uh, because of the Independence Day. So he was here and he said that Cuba was one of the most important uh, processes in the world about sovereignty, sovereignty, uh, about independence, about uh, uh, self-determination. So this wouldn't have been impossible three years ago uh, under Amlo's administration. Actually, I I think that he was more uh, into uh, condemning, uh, you know, with this speech of human rights in other countries. He was not able to to receive like presidents like Nicolás Maduro and Díaz-Canel, and he did. So that meeting was incredible. They also condemned, for example, the situation in Las Malvinas, in Argentina, about the the, the, the colonial situation also of Puerto Rico. No uh, yeah, so it was really important, that meeting. So after that, I think that the CELAC was again on the table. We were talking about uh, the CELAC once again after so many years, actually. Before that meeting in September, uh, it was five years ago that d- it didn't happen, like a meeting like like that, of the CELAC because of the pandemic, because it was not important for the for the region for the governments, uh, and it happened last September. So uh, the counselor, the the foreign a uh, first minister here in Mexico, Marcelo Ebrard. Uh, I remember, like yesterday, like days ago, uh, he said something about the balance, about the conclusions of uh, being in the presidency of the SELAC, and he was saying that because of the SELAC, it was, uh, it was the region wasn't that affected as it could be because they prioritized the access of the vaccines. They had a lot of, uh, like. Um, alliances between, for example, Argentina, Mexico, now with Cuba and the Abdalán Soberana vaccine. Uh, so he said that that the like, like the most important thing of the Select during the last year was uh, the access of vaccines. And I think it was not only about that, it was also about uh, creating new alliances. Uh, I insist uh, Amlo at the beginning of the administration wouldn't be able to to receive presidents like that. I remember it was the first the first time that Pedro Castillo, the president of Peru, uh, was in another country as as president, and it was here in Mexico City also uh, with with Amlo. Uh, that uh, that moment was very important too because Pedro Castillo had meetings in the in the CELAC context with uh, Luis Arce Catacora, the president of Bolivia, with Nicolas Maduro. I remember Nicolas Maduro saying that he had a conversation with Pedro Castillo. So it was a very very important moment. And now after after this presidency of Mexico, we see a meeting and. Uh, I, I don't know if I'm surprised about the declarations of the president of Argentina, uh, Alberto Fernandez, saying uh, you know like uh, totally the, the opposite of of uh, of the object the the objectives of the the CELAC because the, the CELAC was created against the OAS. It was created as an organization without uh, uh, contemplating or without asking for permission to the U.S. and Canada. And what Alberto Fernandez said just days ago was that he was not against the U.S., he was not against Canada, that it was just another organization. And it's very dangerous because I think that after so many years without the lack in the table, in the, in, in, in the debates, uh, having a new President of the Slack, the, the president of Argentina, is very dangerous and, and very sad <laughs> to to listen this kind of declarations saying that it's another organization. And of course, we need to consider that there is another, a, a real crisis, a, a huge crisis in Argentina because of this kind of issues. Because uh, all the 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 Kishner, the Cristina uh, uh, Kishner, and Nestor Kishner supporters uh, were the ones who made Alberto Fernandez one, and he has not been that progressive as uh, the, uh, the kishners uh, were uh, uh, at some point. So, uh, it's it's really sad to listen to this this kind of declarations, I really expect, or at this moment, remember that we've, we've been listening uh, also under ambos administration uh, that the CELAC could be the new OAS, that we could... Uh, this, this would be the the organizations where we could see the the new beginning or the a, a new a new organization. So it's it's really sad to listen to to Alberto Fernandez just uh, trying to uh, to make appear the 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 CELAC as another organization in the region.
1: Yeah, the, I agree that those were very kind of disappointing comments and rather kind of confusing comments too from from Alberto Fernandez in Argentina, because over the last couple of years. I mean, one of the similarities we've seen between Mexico and, and Argentina is that they both stood up to the U.S. in terms of regime change in Venezuela, in terms of the coup in Bolivia, in terms of sanctions on Cuba and Venezuela specifically. Uh, and, and so it's for him to say that, oh, you know, he's, he's, it seems like he's trying to kind of play both sides, to pacify his critics on the right, who don't want to get rid of the OAS. Like, for example, Colombia, they mm-hmm. said... That, bear, that using the idea of strengthening SELAC to bury the OAS would be a colossal mistake, which is you know crazy. But on the other hand, Argentina, I think that it was the it was either Fernandez or the foreign minister who said during their SELAC speech that one of the goals would be for SELAC to engage in dialogue with the European Union, China, India, Russia, and the African Union. And missing from that list is exactly the US and Canada, right? So, so I mean, I think it's so important for, for the region to have this kind of institution, a vehicle where it can with one single voice, engage with other actors in the world within a kind of more pluripolar space, right? Without it being coming from the OAS where that can't, sort of thing can't happen because it's so dominated by the United States. And so, but and, and the idea of, of the CELAC kind of being a potential replacement for the OAS isn't new. I mean, back in 2011, Hugo Chavez said, that the CELAC is going to leave the old and frayed OAS behind, and so do you think there's going to be more progress towards this goal, or or, or is Fernandez's declarations, you know, kind of making you less optimistic about the CELAC?
3: <laughs> yeah, definitely, I'm less op- optimistic with Alberto Fernandez's declarations and with the whole administration of Argentina, you know, it's, uh, you are not the only one who's saying like, it's disappointing. Uh, Remember that one of the first steps of of Alberto Fernandez was uh, actually attacking Venezuela or not, uh, you know, not (laughs) during the first month of the administration. And even Cristina Fernandez and the, the, the the social movements were saying like, no, you, you cannot go and, and do exactly the same that the right wing in the region is doing against Venezuela. So he had to, take a step back about the declarations, about the, the movements he was uh, doing against uh, Venezuela. Um, I don't know what's going to happen with the CELAC during this uh, Argentina's presidency, but I'm sure that things are going to change definitely by the end of this year. We're going to have elections in Brazil. Now, uh, remember, we uh, there were 33 uh, Countries who are part uh, of the SLAC uh, at the beginning, but now there are thirty-two. T- uh, thirty-two because uh, Jair Bolsonaro, when he took power, he decided just to uh, get out of the of the um, uh, of the CELAC. So there are going to be elections by the end of this uh, year, by by October, and all the polls uh, are saying, or you know, the people and everything it says that uh, Lula is going to be back to 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 the presidency uh, by October. So definitely it's not, it's not another member of the CELAC, it's uh, Brazil with millions of people, with uh, a lot of power in taking decisions in the whole region, in the whole planet, not only in Latin America and the Caribbean. So I think that might push uh, forward the idea of having a more revolutionary or leftist uh, CELAC than the one uh, we have now. Um, we have to say that, for example, uh, in, in foreign uh, policy, I was saying that AMLO's administration, uh, I can say that it's really progressive, but there has it has a lot of contradic- contradictions in the government here in Mexico. There are a lot of uh, right uh, yeah, right. Right movements or right uh, members of right parties uh, in the government in the party of the Morena, the party that isn't the power now. Uh, so there are a lot of contradictions, and I don't think that it's one of the priorities of Ambos administration to keep uh, pushing to the to the left uh, to the salac or in, in another another kind of issues in, in foreign policy, but. Uh, we had also elections. I think a lot of things can, can change. Uh, remember, we had elections last year in Honduras. Xomara Castro is going to assume the power uh, this year. Also, Gabriel Boris in March in Chile. Uh, that that's another issue. We it's it's about we're talking about Chile. We're not talking about a small country or or something like that. It's it's one of the most important countries in in the region, and it was governed by the by the um, by the right so um also uh, the elections in Colombia my I don't know what I I mean everyone knows at this point that Gustavo Petro the candidate of the left uh, could win but we're not really sure about uh, if he can do it in, in a country like Colombia he the, actually he he was uh, I mean Uh, Someone tried to assassinate him uh, years ago or months years ago. so it's not, it's not that easy to think that Colombia is going to change the government to the left, especially when it's the most important country for the U.S. in the region, with a lot of military bases in the country, uh, with a Colombia plan, uh, that it's exactly what happened in Mexico in 2012. It, it, it was called uh, Initiative Mérida. It, it was exactly the same. Uh, but I mean, it's Colombia. So a lot of the of, a lot of the future, like a lot of the of what hap- what ca- what can happen with the select depends on the on these kind of governments about Honduras, eh, Colombia, Brazil, eh, Chile, and also I don't know. Eh, we, we we're gonna have a referendum in Mexico to see if people support still support uh, AMLO in the presidency. I think he's gonna win, but this is not only about uh, knowing if they if, if people likes or not like or not AMLO. It's about giving him uh, legitimacy. It's about giving him more um, quote unquote power to decide uh, or to radicalize the the politics here in Mexico. So maybe that might help to the organizations in the region like SELAC to turn more into the left. We've seen what what organizations can really do when they're conceived and when they're created under a leftist and progressive vision like ALBA, TCP, uh, uh, like UNASUR that was dismantled by the right-wing governments in the region when they uh, had access to power to presidencies like Ecuador. They just decided not to continue helping these kind of organizations. So we have examples about uh, having progressive and revolutionary and militant organizations, not only uh, uh, about not only organizations who can—I mean, we need them—but not about, not only about helping a, another countries with vaccines or no. It's about creating a whole region and and, the, and helping the emancipations of the people. So, um, I'm really excited about what can happen this year, not only in in Selac uh, but in the region, in the whole region, Latin America and the Caribbean. I think we are living like amazing moments in the region, and I and I expect that. Uh, Presidencies or like governments, like Che Castro's, uh, uh, like the elections in Brazil and Colombia, can help uh, to select to ALBA, to other organizations, to uh, to to have a stronger uh, progressive movement in the whole region.
1: And real quick before I let you go. You know, at Code Pink, we're part of the campaign to get Secretary General Luis Almagro out of the OAS, the Organization of American States. And right now I'm actually working on an article titled 10 Reasons Almagro Has to Go. How do you feel about Luis Almagro and what do you think he's the what's the worst thing he's done?
3: (laughs) Oh, my God, I just made a, a list. Uh, I mean, it was a joke, but it was not. <laughs> it was not. Uh, I think Almagro is one of the persons that I, uh, I wouldn't say that I hate the most, but I think it's the one of the persons who really represents uh, this uh, what the U.S. imperialism represents for for Latin America and the Caribbean. He is a complete traitor. Uh, He was a a candidate of the progressive countries uh, for the OAS and everyone was expecting him to be uh, the new general secretary of the OAS and this could could change. Uh, He, during the last during the last years he said, "No, I'm not gonna be that kind of person. I don't know what's what's it I think the the worst thing he has done a lot of terrible and horrible things, but I think um, he's totally guilty of what happened in Bolivia no and and I think that for example i I'm not saying that what he has done in Venezuela is not that terrible, that horrible, but Venezuelans have resisted (laughs) during these whole years. But what happened in Bolivia, he is totally guilty of the assassination of 37 uh, persons, uh, indigenous most of them. Uh, He was not only uh, uh, he was not he was he, he knew what he was doing at that moment uh, because of the oas we had a coup and it was not only about evo morales it was not only about the cabinet it was about the people who resisted who died who was assassinated who was persecuted uh, who their their families were at risk all the time so i think bolivia is one of the the, the worst cases uh, of, of of almagro and i insist He has done a lot of things and actually here in Mexico we are really aware and we are all the time uh, watching what he's doing and I'm really happy about that that people here in Mexico now they really know who Luis Almagro is. I mean, three years ago we didn't know because it was the the, the, it was a big alliance between the Mexican government under Peña Nieto administration and under uh, Felipe Calderón. Uh, but now under Ambos administration, people now are conscious here in Mexico who is Luis Almagro. And the opposition, like Venezuelan opposition, like the Bolivian opposition, he has uh, now a big alliance with, with Almagro. So we are really, uh, we are watching him really, really close. <laughs>
1: I completely agree with you. I think that's the worst thing that he's done and I'd like to remind our listeners that Alina made a great documentary about the events in Bolivia in 2019 called Fue Golpe it was a Coup. Uh, you can find it on YouTube. Alina, thank you so much for joining us on Code Pink Radio today. We hope to have you back soon.
3: Of course, thank you Leo and thanks Code Pink for everything you are doing all the time and every time you you I can I can help you and I can be here. I'm I'm, I'm going to be really happy to do it.
0: You think they're foes, they're in business together Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before Been raking in billions and itching for more It's blood for oil, we know there's a link They say Code War, we say Code Pink It's blood for oil, we know there's a link They say Code War, we say Code Pink Code Pink for freedom not. You rock, but you They feed you lies, don't want you to think. They say terror, we say cold Pink They feed you lies, don't want you to think. They say terror, we say cold, pink. cold Pink Freedom. phones and the places we meet they curtail our speech